encouraging things to look at this morning. John chapter 5, verses uh, 1 is where we're going to be picking up today. One of kind of my heroes of the faith, um, kind of right there around the Reformation period and after, was John Wesley. John and Charles Wesley, as well as George Whitfield, they were called the Saddleback Preachers. They used to go on horseback into communities all over, all over England and beyond and proclaim the good news of the gospel. But John Wesley, as well as the other two, uh, encountered a lot of persecution along the way. In fact, it was a regular part of their life. After John Wesley died, they found his diary and they were reading through it. And it was amazing to see like how many times he would be chased out of towns with pitchforks. Literally, he would be chased out and would have to be fleeing town. And then he would go back into another town and proclaim on that same day. And sometimes tw- two or three times in one day, he would be not welcome back or chased out of town. But yet he was faithful. And uh, as a result, God used him in a mighty way. But he became so used to uh, persecution and rejection, it kind of became the new normal for him. (laughs) And one day, about midway through the day, he realized, no one's opposed me or I haven't really suffered hardship today. Maybe there's sin in my heart that I need to confess to the Lord. (laughs) He figured if the enemy was leaving him alone, there must be sin. So sitting on his horse, he began to pray. He says, Lord, if there is sin in my heart, please make it clear so I can confess it and get right with you and get back to serving you. In the midst of his prayer, a man who was not a Wesley fan, who was not uh, excited about the message he proclaimed, picked up a rock and said, I'm going to fix you, Wesley. He threw it, struck him in the temple, and knocked him off his horse. (laughs) He said, amen, stood up, and he thanked the man and said, thank you, sir. Looked to heaven and said, thank you, Lord, for that wonderful reminder that everything's okay, and he went on his way. (laughs) He so expected rejection and persecution that it was almost odd to him when it didn't happen. But you know what, so often for us in America, our biggest fear that we have uh, in sharing the gospel is just that, rejection. At this point, we don't encounter a lot of the persecution that we've seen in the past, and they are seeing in other parts of the world, but rejection is something we can relate to. I think anyone anyone who's addressed uh, this topic, anyone who's shared the gospel likely uh, with any regularity has experienced this at some time. But flip over to Hebrews chapter 12 for a second. Keep your thumb in 1 John and uh, flip over to Hebrews chapter 12. I love this passage, uh, but it's a great reminder to us. And Hebrews chapter 11, is a, it's called the faith chapter. It's, it's kind of recounting the many heroes of the faith. And at the end of Hebrews 11, it said, these, are, these were people or men of whom this world was not worthy. They wandered deserts and mountains. They were persecuted, beaten, um, a lot of them lost their life at the hand of the sword. And as he gets to verse, or chapter 12, he says, Therefore, since we have so great a, great a cloud of witnesses, or in other words, in light of all these people in the past who have stood for the faith, who have endured and pushed through rejection, persecution, and hardship, it said, Let us now lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run the race before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For considered him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Because when you find yourself discouraged when you're facing some of these similar uh, things like rejection or perhaps persecution, remember, you're not alone. 
This is completely normal for us as Christians living in a sin-cursed world seeking to bring a life-saving message. The enemy will oppose us. We can anticipate it. But we look in God's Word and we say, you know what? Jesus went through this. Paul, so many faithful uh, of the apostles and people after him encountered this. It is completely normal. Sometimes we take it so personal and we just feel like giving up or quitting because we're discouraged. It's so important. We're going to be reminded this morning the importance of enduring rejection. We're going to look at a story in which Christ experienced very real rejection. But yet he continued to push through and minister and people came to Christ. That did not stop him from proclaiming uh, the message he came to deliver. So we're going to look at enduring rejection from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. We're going to begin at chapter 5, verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 9 together. It says, After these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, meaning five porches. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whomever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well of whatever disease with which they were afflicted. And there was a man who had been there ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition. And he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered and said, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. For when the water is stirred up, while I am coming, another steps in before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. You know, as we are going to work our way through um, what it looks like and the type of rejection Jesus experienced, we began prior to the experience in this rejection. We see something in this man that he heals initially at the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, that uh, teaches us about a proper response to Jesus and the response that he often does not get from our world. Jesus came into Jerusalem for a feast. We don't know which feast it was. It could have been the Passover feast. It could have been the, the, one of the harvest feasts. Uh, the reality was is that uh, the Jews, Jewish males were required to come to Jerusalem for five different feasts annually. And so here Jesus came for one of the feasts. We don't know which one. It's really not that important. Now near the Sheep Gate which is interesting because Jesus called the Lamb of God. Here near the Sheep Gate is the Hebrew pool called Bethsaida, meaning five porches. There was this pool where the sick and hurting often would come and lay around it. And uh, there's been some speculation as you read. In fact, if you look in your Bibles, perhaps you have it italicized at the end of verse 3 and verse 4, maybe in italics or in or italicized or in brackets. The reason was because that, wasn't, that portion was not in the oldest manuscripts. That was uh, added in later at a time. Many speculate that perhaps a scribe kind of put that in as an explanation in the margin and eventually it got added in just to kind of explain the situation. But there's a lot of people who in light of that say, well, that should never be in there. And so uh, really what, he, what is being described there is just kind of a Hebrew legend. Now, I will tell you why I don't believe that. I believe there was really something supernatural that took place at the pool of Bethsaida because this man had been there for 38 years. <laughs> if he had never seen someone miraculously healed, do you think he would have sat there 
just because of some legend. <laughs> We're going to see in a minute, he had a genuine desire to be healed. But there he was, he was sitting there. Uh, this man was um, evidently crippled. And so when the, they said, the idea, I believe the legend was, they believe an angel came and stirred the waters. They didn't know exactly what was taking place, but here's what they knew. When the waters were churning, the first one in the water would be healed of their ailment. So here at the pool sat all the people with incurable ailments waiting for this to happen, waiting for a miracle. And Jesus comes to the pool, sees this man there who's been there for 38 years, has compassion on him, and comes and heals him. What we're going to look at in terms of uh, rejection with our first point is this. Jesus, he was often rejected because many failed to see their need for healing. Many failed to see their need for healing. Now, this morning, by the way, we, don't, we won't have the entire notes, just the blanks there if you're wondering, if you're following along. But why was this man there? Well, he knew that no one could heal his disease. There was no doctor that could uh, cure him. He was, uh, he was basically, uh, his body had likely... Uh, He'd become crippled and he was unable to move. He was basically stuck there on a bed. He did not have friends or family to help him into the pool when, uh, when the waters were churning. And so he was there in kind of a helpless state. But we see that he understood his debilitating need. This is so important. He understood his debilitating need. He understood something that many in that day did not understand. He understood a physical need uh, and that nothing short of a miracle was going to heal them. But Jesus came not only to heal him, but to reach out to the religious leaders there who had a great spiritual need who did not recognize what this man recognized. He knew he could not move. He knew he was helpless there. He knew he needed a miracle. And that's why Jesus came to him. You see, Jesus often sought out the outcasts, the sinners, those who were despised and rejected in their culture. Because they already knew they had a great need and a sin problem. The reason he butted heads with the religious leaders and Pharisees is they thought they had it all together, right? <laughs> they thought they didn't need a Savior. They thought they were just fine on their own. In fact, listen to Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It says, When the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and with tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy that need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying there. He wasn't calling the Pharisees righteous. Because they were righteous but they, in, a, in a sense, but they were self-righteous, right? <laughs> As he encountered them, he says, No, you are... Uh, egotistical, you're self-righteous, you're legalistic. And they thought they didn't need a doctor. They thought they didn't need a savior. But guess who knew they needed a savior? The sinners, the tax collectors, the outcast, <laughs> the despised, the rejected. They, knew, they were fully aware of their sin. And so they were more prepared to meet their savior than the self-righteous Pharisees of the day. You know, my, as I shared, as we've been sharing all along, my mother-in-law, Laura, has been getting treatment for her breast cancer. Well, this breast cancer was probably present for a couple years before she knew about it. Uh, she had had a little space between her mammograms, hadn't been in for a while. And so the reality is, is the cancer was present, she just didn't realize it. But once she got to the place where it was properly diagnosed and she understood it, 
she then could move forward with proper treatment. But she first had to come to that realization that I have a disease that will take my life. And what so many fail to understand is that this disease of sin is prevalent and present within all of us. And what so many of the sinners and the outcasts already grasped was we are sinners. And so Jesus could come meet them right where they're at. With the Pharisees, he had to take a step back and say, let me first convince you you're sinners and that you're in need of a Savior. They understood that. You see, our sin leaves us just as helpless spiritually as his disease did physically. And you see, many reject Jesus because they fail to understand that need. But we see, secondly, that he had a genuine desire to be healed. Jesus asked him a question, and it almost seems kind of silly. He's been there for 38 years, and he says, do you want to be healed? <laughs> Wouldn't the obvious answer be yes? Well, here's the reality. Does all of our world want Jesus? <laughs> Does everyone want to be healed? I wish the answer was yes. But many would rather continue in their sin than to avoid Jesus, their Savior and Lord. In fact, in, earlier on in John, it says many hide from the light because they don't want their deeds of darkness to be exposed. There's many in our world today that would rather, they want to be the Lord of their own life, they want to be their own master, they want to dwell in sin, and so they want nothing to do with Jesus. They're in bondage. They're in shackles. There's diseases ripping their lives apart and condemning them to separation from God for eternity. And they don't want to be healed. They don't want Jesus. Well, I bet there was many beggars in that day that were in that same condition. As he came, don't assume that everyone that was present there actually wanted to be healed. Because sometimes we get very comfortable in our sin, don't we? <laughs> That's a really dangerous place when we get comfortable in our sin. We know it's a problem. We know we need to give it to the Lord, but we've just kind of grown comfortable with it. And for some of these people, perhaps they thought, you know, it's a lot easier. Yeah, this, this ailment is a, is a big burden to me, but hey, at least I don't have to go out in the fields and work. <laughs> people bring me food. People care for me. I think I prefer this. I think Jesus saw that, and so he, he knew that not everyone wanted to be healed, and so he asked the man, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? He, made, he was about to extend him an offer. I read about a man who lost his job and he was in a wealthy community and he, just, he resulted to panhandling to go out and begging for money. And as he sat there on a street corner, he began to realize this is very productive. Within a short period of time, uh, he could get back on his feet. He had jobs available to him, but he decided he would continue to panhandle <laughs> because it had been very lucrative. So, but... It, so what he had to do was put on grubby clothes, hide his car somewhere where no one could see it, <laughs> waltz over to that corner and take money. And when finally someone confronted him on this, he said, well, the reality was it was easier. It was easier than going back to work. <laughs> so I just kind of grew comfortable with it. And that's how much of our world is. They're very comfortable with where they're at and they want to stay in their sin. And Jesus asked them, do you want to be healed? And they say, no, thanks, I'm okay. We see point C, he responded to Jesus' direction. He comes and asks him, and the man almost can't even fathom it. He says, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. And when the water is stirred up, when I am coming, another jumps in before me. Imagine that someone is blind but has a fully active limbs. And so naturally, as they hear the water being stirred, they'd be able to race. And as this man's kind of 
making his way over, maybe in an army crawl, they would run by him and he was never the first in. He says, yes, I have a genuine desire and this is why I have not been healed to this point. And look what Jesus does. He gives him a command. <laughs> he says, stand up, pick up your pallet or your bedroll and walk. We talked about faith steps last week. Here, Jesus is asking this man to take a step of faith. I imagine, imagine what his legs would look like after not walking for 38 years, right? <laughs> the muscle is probably atrophied, it's shriveled up. Does he even remember how to walk? It's been 38 years. <laughs> and yet, he responds to Jesus' direction. And yet, he stands up, picks up his bedroll, and begins to walk. He doesn't just walk, he picks up and carries something under his arm, begins moving that direction. He responded to Jesus' offer and was rewarded with healing. You know, the reality is, is salvation is offered universally, correct? For God to love the world, the offer is extended to our world. But we need to respond. Yes, He's the one that draws us, convicts us. There comes that point where we have to respond by faith and accept and receive the salvation that He gives. This man had to respond by faith to what Jesus had said to him. And because he did, he responded to Jesus' offer, he was rewarded with healing. And that is the promise to all of us. If we would respond to the offer of salvation, we come as hopeless sinners with, this, with these disease-ridden bodies that are condemned by sin, and we find healing and salvation in Jesus Christ. But I love, he was ready because he saw his need. He was already aware of it. But as we're going to see, Jesus did not just heal this man for the sake of healing him. He was healing him, and I believe this man does become a Jesus follower. But Jesus was sending a message to the religious leaders. Do you remember last time he was in Jerusalem? He came in and started kicking over tables, <laughs> made some whips, went into the temple, drove them out. He met their sin and hypocrisy and legalism head on. Well, Jesus is about to cause a stir. He came back in Jerusalem. He hasn't been there very long when all of a sudden he comes in and he heals a man. But he didn't just heal him. He healed him on the Sabbath day which to the religious leaders was a big no-no. We're going to see, secondly, that he was rejected because he held his ground on truth. He was rejected because he held his ground on truth. Look at verse 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, and he said, He who made me well, he was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And so they asked him, who was the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man uh, who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went his way and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. Now, as we, as we move along in this, we see that Jesus is once again going to deal with their hypocrisy, with their sin, just like he had when he drove them out of the temple. The Jews walked in uh, this legalistic way of thinking, but Jesus would stand his ground on truth and as a result would suffer persecution. Point A, his refusion or sorry, his refusal to dilute the message resulted in persecution. So he heals this man, and this man boldly goes, and as he's walking, he's intercepted by the religious leaders saying, whoa, 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 
What are you doing? Why are you carrying your bedroll on the Sabbath? That's exerting too much effort. You've broken the Sabbath according to their rules and traditions. And the man explains that he had been healed. And nonetheless, their chief concern was the fact that he was breaking their religious rules concerning the Sabbath. But later, um, as Jesus comes and meets him in the temple, this is what I love, the first thing he does, he gets healed. He carries his bedroll. Where does he go? To the temple. He goes to the temple. And Jesus, after healing him, slips into a crowd. It means he literally dodged, dodged everyone and kind of slipped into a crowd. Because his intention was not to go and heal everyone there at the pool of Bethsaida. He now wanted to go and confront somebody, uh, not only confront this man concerning his sin, but confront the religious leaders of the day and their legalism. And that was going to make him very unpopular. Jesus was not concerned with following the rules and regulations of the Pharisees. If you were with us before, I talked about how they had added 30 extra rules to the Sabbath. They were told initially, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. It was a day of rest. And they decided they would take that and they would break it down into 30 rules, 30 extra rules that classified as work, that were classified as work. And you see, Jesus fulfilled the law in every way. He obeyed the law to a T, but he did not obey and embrace man-made rules and tradition or man-made religion. He was not interested in that. He blatantly disregarded it and stood his ground on truth. During China's Boxer Rebellion in the 1900s, insurgents captured a mission station and they blocked the gates, all of them but one. In front of that gate, they put a cross flat on the ground. Then the word was passed to the inside and the students there were part of that Christian school. If they would come and trample the cross underfoot as they exited the gate, they would be allowed to go free. But if not, they would have to go out and face a firing squad. The students had to then debate in their mind whether they would uh, commit this uh, sacrilegious act. Terribly frightened, the first seven students did that. They went and trampled on the cross on their way out. But the eighth student, a young girl, refused to commit the sacrilegious act. Rather, kneeling beside the cross, she prayed for strength. She arose and moved carefully around it and went out to face the firing squad. Strengthened by her example, Every one of the remaining 92 students followed her. Now what, uh, how impactful is a wonderful example? And you see, we look at Jesus Christ here. He could have waited to heal that man on another day. He could have avoided the hard issues. But he stepped out and he said, you know what, I'm going to heal them today and I'm going to confront, I'm going to tell the religious leaders, I'm going to identify their sin so that they can see their need for a Savior. But even knowing how they would respond, he did not hesitate. And I love how personal he is. Yeah, while he ducked away from this crowd, he then headed straight to the temple and he found this man who had been healed. And he lets them know exactly who he is. It's me, it's Jesus who has healed you. And what, the, what we learn about this man is apparently his disease was a result of sin earlier on in his life. Now that's not always the case with diseases and hardships. But in this case in particular, sometimes God in his disciplining hand can punish sin with, uh, with a physical hardship. And he comes to this man and he says, listen, this is, this is why this took place. But I want, I want to spare you from further pain, from further hardship. And so I want to invite you, turn away from that. You know, walk in this newness of life. You know, God's word is clear that even as Christians, as children of God, he will discipline us in love. Hebrews tells us that. 
God will chase you. He will discipline you. In fact, I think sometimes some of the most miserable people, I've said this before, are Christians living in sin. Because <laughs> you not only have the consequences of your sin, the natural consequences, but now you have the disciplining hand of God on top of that. But why does he do that? Because as a loving father, he wants to correct us and steer us away from uh, the pain and the sorrow. So we see, I love this, he comes and he finds, he finds him and he uh, invests in him and he seeks to spare him from future pain. And he does the same with us. But now, as, now that he's come and found this man, he's there exposed before the religious leaders. And we see that they would detest him for his stance against their sin. This is not the only time that Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. He would do it many other times. Once found in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And this just shows you how far gone they were in their own legalism and their own rules. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. It says, On the Sabbath day he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they may find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And so he got up and he came forward and Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful for me to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around, he said to them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so and his hand was restored. Verse 11, but they themselves were filled with rage and dis, uh, discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Okay, so you see the hearts of the, this is how far and how hard their hearts are. They have absolutely no concern for the people, no compassion for people. All they care about is the rules. All they care about is the rules that they've laid out. Remember some of the rules if you were here with us a few weeks ago? If a chicken laid an egg on the Sabbath day, if you ate that egg, you were supposed to kill that chicken the following day for daring to work and lay an egg on the Sabbath. Okay? You... They asked women not to look into a looking glass because if they happened to notice a gray hair and were tempted to pluck it, that would be exerting too much effort on the Sabbath. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the type of things that they had added. They completely missed the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law was simply this. Do not do things on the Sabbath for personal gain. Do not labor for personal gain. That was the point. It was not, do not pick up your bed and walk if you've just been healed by God. <laughs> Okay, what they had done is they had taken what was meant to be a day of rest. We see the example of our God. He worked for six days, created the earth, and rested on the seventh. Did he need rest? No. In Psalm chapter, one, or Psalm chapter 121, it says, We have a God who never grows weary or faint. God doesn't need rest, but we do. We do in our humanity and our weakness. We need rest. And imagine being in that culture, especially in the midst of the harvest, there was always work to do. So they could power through seven days a week and they'd have more than enough work. They said, why don't you set aside this day to worship and to rest? It was hugely for our benefit. And what they'd done is now taken something that was created for our benefit and added so many rules that people were terrified to break the Sabbath. They limited how many steps you could take. You literally had to stand there like a robot to not violate the Sabbath. Imagine, this is your day of worship and rest, and you're terrified like, what? wait, how many steps have I taken? I need to look at my pedometer to see if I've walked too far. 
I'm going to have to stay here and sleep until tomorrow morning because if I take another step, I will have worked. That's the type of things that they had created. They had made a mockery of the Sabbath. So Jesus comes, (laughs) heals intentionally on the Sabbath, which is by no means violating God's law. And they hated him for it because he would not embrace their man-made rules and regulations. He would not bend on the truth. In fact, Jesus warns us that the world may hate us for our stand. In John 15, verses 18 through 20, he says, don't be surprised if they hated you, for they hated me. It's like as people who know that this is not your home, you're going to live differently from the rest of the world. But he warns us of that reality, but also reminds us in John 16 of the wonderful promise that he has overcome the world. Because in this world you will have trouble, but you can rejoice because I've overcome it. You know, we can rejoice and uh, be excited about the fact that we are not alone. And when we embrace that hardship and when we refuse to back down on truth, sometimes the world's going to hate us. No matter how loving, no matter how gracious, no matter how compassionate, if you're unwilling to say, yeah, find your own way to God, that Jesus is not the only way, the truth, and the life, there will be people who will despise you for it. In fact, recently in the past couple years, there was someone in the media that said, Christians pose the biggest threat to our world today. Because what they viewed as, as hate was simply Christians taking a stand on truth. Saying, yes, this is sin. Doesn't mean we don't love those people, but these things are sin, and they would not bend. And for that reason, the whole crowd erupted in applause upon hearing that statement. So sometimes we think, it, well, if I'm loving and gracious, then you know, I think we will be a lot better received. But even at times when, when you're that, because Jesus was certainly that. Anyone deny that? <laughs> he was merciful and gracious and compassionate. But he also, he was full of grace and truth. And when he dug his heels in, they hated him for it. When we had our first home inspection, uh, when our home was being built, I, I showed up for that inspection and the contractor was supposed, to, was supposed to be there and he got held up and wasn't able to make it. So here I am walking through the home on our final inspection. And this guy is making a long list of every reason why, he, why we were getting rejected and why we had failed. <laughs> By the time we were done, he hands me this list and I'm like, I'm sorry. I had no idea all these things were wrong and would need to be corrected. And his response was, oh, don't feel bad. This happens all the time. This is completely normal. In fact, it's very rare that I don't find mistakes that need to be corrected on your first final inspection. And I found great comfort in that. And, oh, okay. <laughs> I thought I was the only one. C.S. Lewis said, friendship is born that moment when one person says to another, what? You two? I thought I was the only one. And as we read in God's word, we should find comfort that Jesus experienced many of these same things that many, of the, many people of faith, though people of grace and compassion, because they took their stand, they were hated by the enemy, which is the devil, who was behind the world, and so they experienced a lot of horrible things. But we could be comforted by the fact that um, we're not alone, that Jesus faces things. A drive for acceptance, point three, a drive for acceptance in this world can lead to compromise. What our world wants Christians to say more than anything else is to promote the concept of tolerance, um, relative thinking that whatever you believe is true, and, uh, and compromise. 
That's what the world wants from us. Let me ask you something, church. Is that loving? Is that loving? Is it loving for the doctor who looked at my mother-in-law's mammogram and said, yes, she has cancer, but I know this is going to make her cry, this is going to make her hurt, so I'm not going to tell her. Would that be loving? Did she want to hear you're cancer-free? Of course she did. What did she need to hear? There's a disease that's going to take your life, and we need to address it. And that is what our world needs to hear from us today. That is real love. The willingness to even endure rejection because we love the world around us. The root of the problem is really sin. And we should expect kickback when we oppose the enemy who is called the God of this world. It's often fear that keeps us from sharing. Fear that keeps us from taking a stand on truth. I love when the, the Emperor Valens threatened Eusebius with the confiscation of his goods, torture, banishment, and even death. His courageous response was, as a Christian, he says, I have no fear of confiscation, for I have nothing to lose, nor do I fear banishment, because my home is heaven, not this country, nor torments, because this body can really be destroyed with one simple blow, <laughs> nor death, because that's the only way to set me free at liberty from sin and sorrow. The reality is, as we take a step back and we look at the fears that hold us back, in the reality, those fears uh, really aren't valid. We're not home yet. We took nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. <laughs> now, it doesn't mean that we don't really struggle with them. Everyone has fear and anxiety. Jesus had it in the garden. But it's whether we let that fear debilitate us and shut us up, keep us discouraged and say, you know what, I'm not going to say a word. I'm not going to proclaim and live the gospel for fear of what might happen. When we let that fear drive us to our knees and say, Lord, you give me courage. Lord, you give me strength to take a stand here. Jesus took a stand. And he was hated for healing. He was hated for being gracious and compassionate and taking a stand on truth. The third way we see he was rejected here is he was rejected for rightly making himself equal with God, for proclaiming who he was. But he answered and said, My father is working until now, and I myself am also working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking him to kill him all the more, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Equal with God. So Jesus begins to reveal, this is who I am. And they rejected him and sought to kill him. He revealed to the Samaritan woman, this is who I am. And she became a believer and a Jesus follower. He revealed to Nicodemus, a religious leader much like these folks. He had a hard time with it. He wrestled with it, but became a follower of Jesus Christ. But he revealed it to them. He simply said, this is the reality. This is the truth and they wanted to harm him. Point A, they hated him for submitting to the Father's direction. He said, I will absolutely follow the law down to the letter of the law, down to a T, but I will not follow and I will not embrace what you have added to it as truth because it's simply not the case. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, so far as the heavens are above the earth, my thoughts are, above your, are higher than your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Jesus was operating on a heavenly timetable. As part of uh, the, the triune God, he was not interested in man's 
uh, man-made rules. He was interested in pleasing the Father. He says, I am always at work, just as my Father is always at work. I'm ready to heal, reconcile, redeem seven days a week. <laughs> seven days a week. I mean, how far would, it, would they have had to come to, to come to the point where here in the midst of, of the synagogue comes someone who's hurting and they say, you better not help him. You better not serve him. You better obey our rules. You see how far it gotten? This is the type of thinking. This is why they thought they were perfect. They had it all together based on rules that they had made and they didn't need Jesus. But point B, they understood Jesus' declaration of deity. <laughs> Jesus made a statement here and he was being very pointed. He says, my father rather than our father. He was claiming to be God's own unique son. And for those who say, see, Jesus is the son of God. He is not part of the triune God. He is the physical offspring of God. They are completely misunderstanding what Jesus is saying here. In fact, it's crystal clear. The Jews knew exactly what he was saying. For they said, that's blasphemy. You're claiming to be equal with God. The term son simply means is that he was the father's own unique son, meaning he had this own unique position. It had nothing to do with physical offspring. It was a very unique and one-of-a-kind position. And they understood, you're claiming to be God. So every time Jesus proclaimed himself to be the son of God and he calls him my father, he was saying, I am God in the flesh here before you. Notice he does not correct them, Right? He doesn't say, no, no, you got it all wrong. There's no need to harm me or kill me. He says, yeah, he says, yeah, that's exactly what I've declared to you. He doesn't correct them. And they sought to kill him for blasphemy. Their reception was quite different. And we see a glimpse of what lied ahead. This is really where the murderous plot began that we see come to fruition at Calvary. <laughs> it's because Jesus did not embrace man-made traditions as truth, and Jesus revealed himself to be only who he was, God in the flesh. And he hit them right where they were. He hit them on uh, account of their sin, and they got angry. They ignored mercy uh, that he had shown toward man and set out to destroy him. This happens again in Acts. People come, the, the hurting are coming. Uh, here's Peter. He, he heals the hurting, and all of a sudden now he's brought before, uh, he's brought before the court. Why? For healing people and preaching Jesus. <laughs> he was doing everything he was supposed to do. And in Acts 40 and 41, they flogged him and they sent him on their way. And his response is amazing. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. They rejoiced. What did they do? They were healing and teaching truth. That's it. And they were despised just like Jesus was by many of those very same leaders. It's amazing, isn't it? You see someone who's been crippled for 38 years walking by you, and you're so far gone that all you can think about is, hey, you're breaking a rule. That would be like Leanne has her four-month-old TJ. We'll lift him up for a second, Leanne. This is TJ. TJ likes his food. He's a hefty dude. <laughs> he eats so much, he, can, he, can't, he struggles to hold himself up just because he's, he's a beefcake. Okay, he's four months old. He cannot sit up, he cannot crawl, and he cannot walk. Now imagine that we went and we laid him in his crib, and we said, good night, TJ, we'll see you in the morning. And we laid him down, 
And then we left the room, and we're sitting downstairs watching TV, and TJ gets out of his crib, walks down the stairs, and walks by us. What do you think our first response will be? Hey, we put you in bed. It's bedtime. You're not allowed to be up. No, we would be blown away because we've never seen him do this before. (laughs) It would capture our attention. It would draw us in, and that was the intention of Jesus' miracles. Let me show you who I am. And they said, I don't care what you show us. We will not believe. But you know what? Jesus kept ministering. He kept reaching out in Jerusalem and in Galilee and Judea. And although many religious leaders rejected him, people like Jairus, who was the leader of the synagogue, came to saving faith. People like Nicodemus. So many will reject, but guess what? Some will believe. Maybe some will believe years later. It's so important for us to remember that we're not alone in rejection. And do not let rejection discourage you and leave and say, you know what, I'm done with this. Let me close with this verse. Flip over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is how the Apostle Paul viewed it. The Apostle Paul who talked about being crushed but not defeated. (laughs) Never abandoned. He said in 2 Timothy 2 verses 9 and 10. He said... Let's back up to verse 8. It says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. He said, I will endure all of this. Because guess what? The elect are out there. There's people who will believe. There's, and the fact that we're still here, the fact that uh, this age of the church is not over is remind us that God is still rescuing and redeeming today. And even when we can't see it, even when we're rejected and discouraged, remember, this is nothing new. But God has worked, is bigger and greater and continues to rescue and redeem. Greater is he who is in us than he is in the world. Amen? These things he has come and he's come and told us so that we may have peace. And we may have take comfort because he has overcome the world. One day George Mueller had began praying for five of his friends who had all rejected the gospel. After many months, one of them came to the Lord. It would be ten years before the next two would trust in Jesus Christ. It took twenty-five years before the fourth man was saved. Mueller persevered in prayer until his death uh, for the fifth friend, about 52 years. He never gave up hoping that his friend would accept Christ. His faith was rewarded for soon after his funeral, the last man came to Christ. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth rejection. (laughs) It's worth um, hardship. It's worth it all. Every time... A soul turns to Jesus Christ and is reconciled to God. There's a party in heaven and eternity is changed. (laughs) Those we sometimes feel so discouraged by it, may we look back to Jesus. And Jesus was not afraid to be rejected. In fact, it was ultimately, even though these men, they they sought to kill him, they had no idea that he would use even his death to bring life. We cannot stop our God from accomplishing his purposes. Our world, though it looks discouraging and overwhelming, um, 
He is sovereign. Our God reigns. <laughs> and the fact that we're still here means he's still redeeming and he wants to use us. So it's okay if rejection becomes the new normal for you. <laughs> this morning, you're not alone. So don't be discouraged by a message on rejection. Be encouraged. Because if our enemy's attacking you, it means he does not like what he's seeing. And praise God for that. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this example of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that there are so many in our world like the religious leaders of that day who are trying to follow man-made traditions and rules, trying to merit heaven on their own. Lord, may they come to that understanding that they are hopeless and helpless without Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone in here in this room this morning that has never understood fully why Jesus came, that he didn't just come to dwell among us, he came to rescue us because we were hopeless without him. That he was the perfect Lamb of God who gave his life on the cross as our substitute. That he makes an offer to any and all who will put their faith and trust in him and his sacrifice as our substitute. That he would uh, pay the punishment for our own sin and he would make us fit for heaven. Lord, I pray anyone in this room who has not realized that, Lord, We'll dig in and look at what your word says. We'll discover the reward of faith in obeying what Jesus said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. May people be reconciled to you today. But Lord, for those of us who are out and who sometimes let that fear of rejection, may we remember that ultimately they are not rejecting us. They are re rejecting the one whom we represent. But Lord, we long to see our world come to you. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to encourage each other and be encouraged by the fact that we are truly not alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can stand and you are dismissed this morning. <laughs>